What I learned from, from my mentor, the gentleman that was worth about $150 million, right, developer in Washington, D.C., is he had a series of these, of these life insurance strategies in which he flowed all of his you know, capital expenditures, repairs, um, sometimes he'll get a big refinance, and he'll put his money in here, and he stuffed it in here, and these things give you 4 to 6% compounded over your lifetime. And what's really, really cool about them and one of the reasons why you know he, this gentleman was able to do all of this by himself is you, your money, when you put it in there, it's going to work for you 4 to 6%. And you can leverage it like a line of credit and go out and buy real estate, which is what I, the reason why I was able to purchase all these birds. I was just able to recycle and replenish my capital over these past couple of years is you can leverage it like a line of credit and your money is still compounding at that 4 to 6%. This is the Yield Coach Show, Season 1, Episode 17. I'm your host, Ian Brown, and every episode we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, business leaders, and inspirational guests ready to open up, share their story, the good, the bad, the ugly, so you can learn lessons, gain advantages, and accelerate your success. A couple of housekeeping announcements. Uh, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Yield Coach for instant updates and occasional live feeds of the show. Also, we are opening our doors to outside investors and in some of our upcoming 2022 real estate endeavors, and that would be ideally for both accredited and non-accredited investors. So if you have interest in investing alongside with Yield Coach, you can email me at ian at yield-coach.com. Again, ian at yield-coach.com if you want to get on our investor list. And as I mentioned before, our e-course, Employee to Entrepreneur, is live and available at yield-coach.com or via the link in our Instagram bio. All right. I'm very excited about today's guest. Today's guest is Clayton Hepler. He is the founder of the Creative Capitalist Brand. He is a multifamily investor, an educator, and a cash flow specialist. He is the chief wealth strategist at Creative Capitalist. He has scaled a family company from two states to 42 states in only 18 months, uh, partnered with big names in the restaurant space like Jeffrey Zakarian from Iron Chef. He also has an interesting take on using life insurance as an investment slash savings vehicle. We'll let him get into that. And he helps entrepreneurs with their real estate investments and in implementing cash flow banking through some of those insurance products. His goal is to help 10,000 entrepreneurs um, and real estate investors in achieving their goals by December of 2024. That's quickly approaching, Clay. And on the investment side, he has done 75 wholesales or flips um, as director of acquisitions, and he has 14 units under management, including a luxury Airbnb in Colorado and another eight units under contract. Clay, great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm tremendous. That was a great uh, introduction. And I actually have one thing that changed. I've got 15 units under contract now. We just got a seven unit uh, for Burr, for Burr. So we, we're excellent. We're, we're still rocking and rolling in the real estate front. Love what's going on still um, and excited to be on the show here. That means you're very active because I'm reading uh, an intake form from just a few weeks ago. So you've already thrown some more <laughs> under contract. Good for you. Absolutely. Well, you're a. You're a young man with an impressive developing and emerging resume. Uh, give us a little bit on your background. Yeah, so uh, failed diplomat, 
I was uh, going to, my, my goal in life, Ian, was to be a ambassador, to be a diplomat, and I was working for the embassy in Buenos Aires a couple of years ago, and I wanted to be the ambassador, wanted to start do, go down that path, and it just didn't work out, really. I was very sort of corporate. I had to spend the five years stamping passports and then the 10 years after this, and it was, it was very disenchanting. So what I did was took some time off of college. We already talked about in the intro, helped scale my family luxury chocolate company from two to 42 states. Uh, still not super active in the business, have sort of an equity portion in the business. I left that business about two years ago, two and a half years ago, but it's still churning. We just got uh, some some amazing awards called the Sophie Awards, which is the highest uh, award that a specialty food can get in the world. We got three of the gold Sophie Awards, so that's super exciting. Um, and and now in my, after I was in the family business, I left the family business, met a gentleman that was worth about $150 million. I uh, sort, of, sort of served as an arm's length mentor for me, who was a developer in Washington, D.C., uh, multifamily offices, and had some specialty shops. That's the relationship that I was able to establish with him through the my family's business and me being in the sales role. And he taught me about, hey, Clay, you got to buy real estate. You have to own businesses. You have to have life insurance and tax strategies and, and all these things that the wealthy people know, but the majority of people don't. And so I started to implement the things that he told me to implement kind of like a disciple, right? I uh, joined a, a local real estate firm, and when I joined the firm, uh, we basically started doing wholesaling, and I scaled that business in a year to 75 deals in its first year of wholesaling. Uh, and as I was telling you here, I, I recently quit my, you know, resigned from my job, quit my job, and now I'm focusing completely on all, a lot of the tactics and the strategies that I learned from, from him you know, implementing them in my own life, Airbnbs, multifamily properties, as well as really catering a, a, a wealth building strategy for entrepreneurs and real estate investors using uh, life insurance uh, as a place to basically put your, your opportunity fund and use that and in, 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 in create a savings account that's going to yield you much higher than if you were to just have it in the bank and going to give you asset protection and really accelerate your path to, to financial freedom. So what I do today is I'm a real estate investor, but primary, primarily my firm helps real estate investors create, protect, and multiply their cash flow. Now, Clay, the, um, the job that you left, is that the job where you were doing the wholesaling and flips? Was it the real estate company? Okay. Now, even though you just left that company, um, it is relevant to the audience. If we just take a few minutes to unpack some of that. So you scaled that up on the wholesaling and flips. And for those, I think most of the audience knows, but a wholesale is a, a contract assignment for a fee. So Clay's company would put a property under contract and then sell that contract or assign it for a fee. And um, it's a low risk. Um, it's a low risk position to take. And it's actually quite popular in like frothy economies, um, especially when there's a lot of buyers like there are now. Clay, I think um, I'd like you to mention what were some of the most, what market were you doing that in and what were some of the more effective outbound marketing techniques to get deals under contract? Yeah, we were almost all digital. We did a ton of Google ads and a ton of Facebook ads. Uh, and that's how we, we, we you know, mixed with uh, fi uh, 
the same channels that everyone knows, direct mail, texting, cold calling. We started to, or we stopped at the end doing texting and cold calling because it's kind of rude. Like no one really likes to be text. No one likes to be cold called. And you just get a lot of people that uh, got angry. There's all these TCPA laws that you can get sued. And so we were like, we don't want to, we really don't want to be sued. We, we, we want to have a, a good client experience when we purchase these homes. So we ended up just sort of having an inbound strategy. It was expensive, but we were really able to create a scalable model through that. So we just dominated Google ads, dominated Facebook ads. Um, and that's how we brought deals through the door. Uh, our sales process was pretty similar, you know, the Sandler sales process that everyone knows, right? Um, and we just had a really tight dispo strategy as well uh, that allowed us to, to have pretty strong profits on the back end after we locked these deals up. And just um, remind me, that was in what market? I'm sorry, I, I missed the beginning of your, your question. We're in, we're in Pittsburgh in the Pittsburgh metropolitan area. Okay. So the whole, the whole metropolitan area, which is about 2.5 million people. Now, was there a, other than pursuing, you know, this passion of the, you know, the insurance vehicles for, for multiplying capital, do you see anything in your market where the wholesaling was becoming less viable or was it more just time to move into a different pursuit? Uh, it was really to move into a different pursuit. I didn't love wholesaling because I did feel like, um, you know, for some of the deals we were getting more, we were kind of taking more from the, off the top than we we might have. I don't know. It, it was it was hard, kind of hard for me from an integrity base to do that. Um, you know, some people can do it, and really, there's a there's a service there that that helps a lot of distressed homeowners. But for me, I was having a little bit of an issue with telling people one thing and then you know beating them down in price, which is basically what you're doing when you're wholesaling. Um, but there's a lot again. There's a lot of good people that do it, but I just it didn't sit right for me from an integrity basis. And, and it was just sort of natural. I was getting more clients with the creative capitalist business. I really believe in it. It's helped me get to financial freedom in like 20 months. Obviously, in conjunction with real estate investing, and it, and I think that mo for most real estate investors and entrepreneurs, it is the strategy that helps you amplify your wealth over your life. So I was like, hey. I want to go full time into this. I really, I really believe in it. I think it's a tremendous strategy for many people, and and I felt like that was something that I could stand behind for for quite a long time. So that was really the transition. It was natural, um, you know, no hard feelings on on both sides. It was just yeah, something that I felt more comfortable doing because I'm very much an integrity based person, and if I don't believe in something, it's starting to get hard for me to sell sell that. Now. Obviously, you developed a skill set working for that real estate firm that you've now left. Um, let's talk before we move into your 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 core discussion. Let's talk about your current portfolio. How'd you find it? How'd you fund it? What are you going to do to it? Is it a hold? Is it a sell? It is a burr. But let's talk about what you own. And I know some of it's under contract, but kind of like what's your target? How you find it? How you fund it? What are you going to do? Sure. Let's let's open it up. So my first deal ever was a house hack. So I bought a three unit building. And for, for your listeners that don't know, a house hack is you buy a building, uh, it could be a single family home, could be a multifamily property, and you live in one of the units, and you have other tenants that pay for your living expenses. Much to my uh, wife's chagrin, 
we're still living in the three unit. Uh, we will next year not be living in it, but you know I've convinced her to to continue to live in it with with me for the for the time being. From the that was August of twenty twenty. Okay. And pretty then, recent. Pretty recent. And then we started to buy burrs. So I bought a three unit building that I could throw a rock from where I currently live and I burred it. Then I bought a single family home and I burred it. Then I bought a six unit and I burred it. Then I bought a multi million dollar Airbnb. Uh, multi million dollar. I mean, it's $1.1 million Airbnb in Colorado. Um, it's a million dollar Airbnb. And I just closed on a three unit building. Um, in those three units and the next uh, 12 units that we have in escrow right now, Ian, are all burrs as well. I found them through wholesalers, found them through direct mail, and I, I have that with a partner. We're buying those with a, I'm buying those with a partner. So, um, yeah. And then, okay, that's excellent. So, um, you've, your acquisitions are in different markets. You started with a house hack, which I think anyone that's been listening to this show or watches our social, if you want to be in this game and you are renting or own a single family home and still have a car payment, stop. Begin house hacking and go buy a car that you can afford with no note. You're going to save, depending on where you live, thirty to $50,000 a year by doing those two things. And now you can become an investor. Um, it's, it's just a no-brainer. So good for you. Um, the direct mail, that's great. I think people underestimate direct mail for finding deals. I did a couple campaigns with Ballpoint. And I must confess, I haven't converted one, but I had some... I had some really good leads that might just be a matter of time. Um, really good assets by the beach that um, it, the, the older clientele responded well to the ballpoint. I've already met them in person. I do believe one will sell to me when the time is right. And that was a pretty modest uh, spend. It was under a $1,000 campaign. Um, now with your burrs, I know you have a partner. Are you funding with uh, like a fix and flip loan, doing some changes, and then doing a traditional refi? Take us through the burr. Yeah. Well, and I apologize for the listeners. Burr is an acronym, and and Clay's going to help me. So I'm probably going to botch it, but you're going to buy, you're going to rehab, you're going to rent it out, and you're going to repeat. I think I got refinance. So, you you miss refinance. Okay, refinance. So yeah. So uh, I always miss one of the R's. It's like I know what it is, and I drop the R. But uh, so take take us through this um, this burr process. And, and, and let me just tell you why I love it. Right. The reason why you love it is because. Most people, when they're starting out, or in general, real estate is a cash-poor business. You know, as a real estate investor, it's kind of like being addicted to a very significant drug. You just want to keep buying and buying and buying. And the way that you can buy and buy and buy over long periods of time is if you're able to recycle your cash, okay? The way that you recycle your cash is through the Burr method. Simply, you're purchasing a property that's below market value, you're rehabbing it, so you increase the value, you force equity, you rent it out at a higher rate that you would have if you just purchased it right away. Maybe you purchase it and it's not even livable. Then you go back to the bank and you say, hey, uh, I believe this, this property is worth this amount. I'm going to get a long-term loan and I'm gonna refinance it out. It could be a 25-year AM, it could be a 30-year AM, 20-year AM, whatever. And you, you can refinance all your money out. You can refinance more than all your money out. In the worst case scenario, if, it's a pro, it's, if it comes in below what you think it's worth, 
you're still going to get a 30% return, a 40% cash on cash return, a 20%, which would be better than if you just put your money down on it. That's why I love it. That's why I love it. Because, you know, I wasn't a trust fund kid. I, I had no money when I came into real estate, nothing. That's why I started with a house hack and built the equity and then leveraged my life insurance to continue to buy more real estate. And I've been able to amass a portfolio that I really don't deserve, right, in terms of the amount of income that I make in that period in my life um, because I was able to recycle my cash. So I hope that that was helpful. I don't know, Ian, if that was, if that was sort of comprehensive, but uh, the way it that, was. yeah, the way that I, and, and to answer your other question, the way that I purchased all of these properties with, with short-term financing, so either through private lenders or hard money. So, you know, you can go out and find a hard money uh, lender and they'll loan up to a certain either loan to cost or after repair value loan to cost is your, you know, your loan in proportionate to your total cost or your, the after repair value of uh, what they think that the property is going to be worth. Usually hard money lenders loan up to 75%, 70%. Um, and so as long as you purchase the property correctly, your rehab's tight. Uh, and you have a really strong after repair value, you can basically go into these properties with very little money, if any money. Uh, so we use private lenders and we use hard money. And I appreciate you diving through that. And for a lot of people, you know, a successful burr is getting all your money back out or maybe some more. But I agree with you. If you have to leave, if you have to leave some money in the deal, it would be a, a, a non-successful, unsuccessful burr if you're not over a 20% rate of return. And you're right, you might be... 40, 50, 60, I mean, it could be a 100% rate of return. I mean, I've done I've done some refis where I had to leave a little bit of money in the deal. I might have argued with the appraised value and, and didn't win, but um, it's okay. You know, I think a lot of people get frustrated that they can't scale because they buy, they rehab, and they go for that big refi later, and, and maybe they're a little bit short on the appraised value and they can't get all their money back. It's okay to leave some of your money in the deal, it's going to have an excellent rate of return, assuming it's an income property. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, one other thing on your personal investments, sounds like you're fond of Airbnb. I have some Airbnb in my portfolio as well. How are you managing those? It sounds like you have one in Colorado, and I know you don't live there. So enlighten the audience on kind of how you're how you're uh, tackling Airbnbs remotely. Yeah, and, and let me just, one, one last thing related to Burr, and I think that your listeners will find this super valuable. When you go to refinance your burr, you know what you can do? You can bring, this is what I do every time, I print out multiple pages of here's properties that I think it's worth, you know, here's, here's um, my comps. I give them comps. I just give it to them. I, I make it, you know, a 10 page, 15 page, beautifully designed uh, package and I just give it to the appraisal. And what they, what, you know, human beings are human beings, right? They take a lot of things on first value and first impression. So I'll, I'll put like a candle or have my property manager put a candle in maybe one of the units as soon as they get into the property because that cements in their mind that this is a clean property. It's well taken care of. Or you put scent, different scents in the properties. You can look up different scents that you know kind of go into someone's psychology to make sure that they think it's a clean place. I do that every time. Because I've gotten, I've gotten after repair values that might have been a little higher than I anticipated because I was willing to go the extra mile. And guys, this is, if you pull out, if you pull out this, this um, refinance, it's debt, 
so the government doesn't tax you. So you can add 20, 30, 40, 50, $100,000 additional to your income every single year by completing these burrs and you are not taxed on it. So I just wanted to make that point. I think that your listeners could really benefit from kind of going the extra mile to, to approve the appraiser and you can contest an appraisal if, they, if they're if they not at a level that you think it's uh, worth. Uh, and related to the Airbnbs, yeah, so Clay, Clay, one thing we jump in. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I think a lot of the audience or some of the audience might know that I'm still a certified general appraiser in the state of Florida, and I did commercial appraisal for uh, over five years, hotels, golf courses, retail centers, apartments, all this stuff. So to your point, now a lot of the properties I was appraising were large and significant, but people would just like leave a key or, hey, go meet the maintenance man or open this lockbox, show yourself around, and... You know, here I am doing the inspection and I'm, you know, we're all doing our best as human beings, but to have, if you're an owner and you're being appraised, your assets being appraised, take the time to pull the comps that you think are the most helpful, the ones that are truly apples to apples, have your property looking good, have the, if, I mean, I'm in Florida, so have it nice and cool, have the air conditioning knocked down. So it's, you know, I think Clay's idea about the candle, I never thought about that, but I mean, you want the place to smell good. You want it to be nice and cool um, because they're going to infer things. What if you walk into the same asset and it's hot and it's dark and the lights are all off and you had to open a lockbox to get in there and, if, and it seems musty, probably because all the windows are shut, the blinds are drawn, the AC is off. So I wasn't planning on talking about this. I'll stop probably with that, but don't underestimate uh, the human to human part of working with appraisers. And I'm speaking as an actual appraiser. I don't go write these reports anymore. I've kind of moved on from that in my life, but appraisers are humans and appraisal is an art form, not a science. And give these men and women the best comps you can find. Have the property looking good. Don't don't underestimate it. Don't just send them an address and text them a lockbox code. It's lazy and it can hurt you. All right, Clay. Absolutely, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think it's super relevant. We're dealing with people here, guys. It's not just numbers. Related to lug, uh, Airbnb, uh, the question was, why did I do that? I think or talk a little bit about it. Here's the thing. You know, my wife's going to listen to this. She's from Colorado. She wanted to buy an Airbnb. She wanted to move out to Colorado. She saw this place. It it was, um, you know, where her child, she grew up in this town in the Rocky Mountains. It's right next to Rocky Mountain National Park, right next to the largest freshwater lake in Colorado, 30 minutes from Winter Park, 30 minutes from um, uh, another ski resort. I forget. It's not coming to me off the top of my, my mind. It was a, It was a deal. I mean, it was an old property that we knew that we could add value to. We thought that it was, you know, we put a little bit of money into it. We could probably create a million dollars of equity. Uh, there was just so much there and people didn't want it because they wanted, didn't want to, um, you know, get their hands dirty. And we just saw it and we thought it was going to be a diamond in the rough. Um, turns out it was. You know, we're running it now and it's, it's incredibly successful. People are going up there for Rocky Mountain National Park. You have the families going up there to celebrate. It's got the largest uh, Labor Day celebration in the, in this, um, for mountain towns in, in Colorado. It was just really a good deal and we, we, we want to go there too, I mean selfishly, right? That's the reason why we buy real estate. That's the reason why we, we try to build wealth is because we want to enjoy the fruits of our labor. Well, this was a way for us to purchase an asset, be able to visit it sometimes during the year and have it cash flow. 
and it's cash flowing. So nice. a lot of hard work. My my wife was out there for a month, you know, sort of scheduling contractors. We had to, we completely we had this seventy shag carpet. I mean, it was brutal, but we went through it. We painted it. We made it really nice, and we're going to progressively add more value to it over the years, uh, and we'll be able to visit it. So um, we picked that. Clay, let me let me jump in right there. So if you could enlighten the audience. I know what my deals in Florida do, traditional rental versus Airbnb, the same asset. What do you think it would do in a traditional annual rental versus your nice furnished Airbnb? I mean, not even comparable. I, I don't even I, like, you know, I, we, we're, we're probably gross 170 this year, right? Uh, maybe 180 a, a traditional rental. I, I don't know, 24. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yeah, like it, it's no. a mount, it's a mountain town. It's a five bedroom, four thousand square foot place. So maybe forty. So it's it's yeah. it's trip. It's tri- quadruple. I mean, it's quadruple. And your, and your management. I know you don't live there, but you might go visit that. And by the way, guys, that's another fun reason to own Airbnb. You can go actually enjoy your properties. My Airbnb in Neptune Beach. I can go down there, I can block it. I'm doing four more in Atlantic Beach. I can go down there and enjoy the property. I'm out and I'm running it again. You cannot do that with traditional real estate. Now, uh, Clay, jump into the operations side. I assume you have third-party management. Actually, we, we do not. We do not have third-party management. My um, wife grew up, like I said, my wife uh, grew up going to this town. We know a lot of people in the town. We have people that check on it constantly. We have ring cameras. Um, we have sophisticated property management applications, and you know, we we frankly, before we did this, we rented our our place for a little bit. You know, the place that we currently reside in, and another one of our our units to get to cut our teeth in sort of remote management. So we we manage it all completely remotely. Uh, for the time being, we think that that's a sustainable way to do it because we do want to start to build that business a little bit more. And you know, we want to get a couple more uh, luxury Airbnbs in different markets. Um, and don't mind the management. It's kind of easy. Do you mind sharing any um, tips or software or things that have allowed you to do it remotely? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, the, the biggest thing is the people in, in that area. We have a reliable cleaner. We have an incredibly reliable group of handy people. We have people that we can call. Uh, we're connected to the community. So it was, again, I, I don't know if I would recommend this for everyone. But it was easier for us because we did have the relationships already built in. The management software that we use is Guesty. Uh, I don't know if it's one of the property management softwares that people use for, for luxury Airbnbs. It's worked for us. Yeah, I'm using Guesty right now. And um, there are competitors, but I think Guesty is good. Another one that I'll plug because I thought they do a pretty good job is the Beyond pricing app. It's an algorithm. They only take 1% of your revenue. And they tend to be able to get you maybe 17 to 22% better revenue and more booking. So that 1% is absolutely washed out. You don't notice it. So uh, Beyond Pricing App is one that I would suggest to the audience as well. At least give it a look. Um, I like that. So Clay's got great resources in Colorado. It allows him to run his Airbnb without paying that 20% or more um, Airbnb management fee, which is, I mean, if you're doing 180, it, it's, <laughs> it'll make you gasp to pay the 20% management fee on that. So that's, um, I, I appreciate you sharing some of those details. And um, it's also one of the, let's be, honest, let's be honest, Airbnb is also one of the only ways you can get into these 
high-end properties, you wouldn't be able to acquire them and burr them without an Airbnb vehicle. So um, practically speaking, like Clay said, it might do two, $3,000 a month in traditional rental. It's going to do like 12000 a month or more in um, Airbnb. So. Absolutely. All right. Um, well, Clay, if, if you want, one of, your, one of your main talking points that we discussed before the show is uh, your creative capitalist brand and what you're helping people do once they have success. And maybe even early on, like you said, if you wouldn't mind jumping into your brand and what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about here today, Burrs. We were talking about cash flow. Real estate investors, entrepreneurs need places to put their money. A lot of times I talk to my clients and they say, hey Clay, I, you know, I have money that six, seven, eight percent that I allocate every month to CapEx, to repairs, to taxes, to insurance. And I just have money that sometimes comes in with a with um, you know, refinance or a flip and I just don't know where to put it. I don't know where to put it. And so what I learned from, from my mentor, the gentleman that was worth about $150 million, right, developer in Washington, D.C., is he had a series of these, of these life insurance strategies in which he flowed all of his you know, capital expenditures, repairs. Um, sometimes he'll get a big refinance, and he'll put his money in here, and he stuffed it in here, and these things give you 4 to 6% compounded over your lifetime. And what's really, really cool about them and one of the reasons why you know he this gentleman was able to do all of this by himself is you your money when you put it in there is going to work for you four to six percent, and you can leverage it like a line of credit, and go out and buy real estate, which is what I the reason why I was able to purchase all these birds. I was just able to recycle and replenish my capital over these past couple of years, is you can leverage it like a line of credit, and your money is still compounding at that 4 to 6%. Now, I'm sure people that are listening to this are saying, this, this sounds you know, too good to be true, right? I mean, my money's working in two places. Um, what's, what's the catch? Well, it's life insurance, right? So there's a period of time in which you need to pay for, you need to pay for the expenses related to life insurance. There's a death benefit because this is whole life insurance. This is a specifically designed whole life insurance contract with a mutual insurance company. And so there is a, there's a death benefit that goes to your heirs tax-free, but you still have to pay for that. You gotta pay for the commissions, for the um, agents like myself. I help people set these things up. So for the first couple of years, the money that you put in, you're gonna, be, you're gonna access 75, 85, maybe 95% of it up until like the, the fifth, fifth, sixth year depending on your age and health. And so for people that are thinking short of short term, it's, it's, it's sometimes people can't get over the fact that there's a time period in which you gotta pay in and your, your money's not gonna show up one to one. But over your lifetime, it's gonna return that four to 6%. It's creditor and asset protected. You can leverage it over your lifetime so that that money is continuing working for you uninterrupted and then you can continue to use the real estate, the burr, the Airbnbs, your business, human, you know, investing in people or marketing expenses to pay that back. So if you look over a period of time of 10, 15, 20 years, just like we look at real estate, the ability for you to create so much more wealth by using this vehicle as your opportunity fund, as your savings vehicle is immense. So I have some working knowledge of like the infinite banking concept, um, but let's 
I don't think it's going to be familiar to this audience. So um, what I know is, and I'll just say a few broad pieces and you can, uh, you can drill down. Yeah. So my understanding is that, like, okay, it's a whole life insurance product and you want to have like a low death benefit. So you have, you know, better, better premiums than you can get in. You start funding the policy and then, it compounds, you said four to six, or I think I've heard four to seven, whatever. It compounds uninterrupted. And let's say I put $100,000 in, um, you know, it's going to stay in compound. And then I draw a line of credit off of that. You've got the creditor protection. And if I need money for like a down payment or a car or a rehab, or I think what you're going to say later is some of your clients actually park like operating capital in there and drop it. But we'll see. Um, I hadn't thought about that. That's clever. But um, I'm sure you know the number. But if you're compounding 6% a year, I imagine you double your money in less than, what, like eight, nine years, something like that. Um, so you leave your money in there. If you have no deals to do, um, it's still compounding. A lot of real estate guys... I've heard use this because as a real estate guy myself, I like to have cash reserves. Cash reserves take you through, they can carry you through recessions, they can carry you through vacancy, they can carry you through a lot of bad things. You're not gonna go belly up if you have good cash reserves. Um, and so, but those cash reserves are usually sitting in people's operating accounts. So what Clay's talking about, and I'm not gonna take his thunder, is putting those, putting those larger funds of money into one of these insurance vehicles and let it compound. And then when you finally need it because you find an investment deal or a life event happens or whatever, you pull it out, but you pull it out as a line of credit. So it still keeps compounding. I'll pause there, Clay. No, I think, I think you got it. I think really that the, the, the gist of what you said was, this is just an alternative to a savings account. And what's really special about it is if you take your money out of your savings account, what meager interest that you're being given on a savings account, that disrupts the interest that you could earn on that, right? If you have your money in here, $100,000, $200, million, if you take the money out and by taking the money out, you're just getting a policy loan, a loan against the value of your cash in your life insurance contract, that money is still compounding over your life. So you never ever interrupt the interest that could be accrued over your life. What does that mean in terms of 20 years? It could be millions of dollars depending on your, your, um, the amount of cash value that you have in your life insurance contract that you can continue to replenish and reuse over your lifetime and then pass on to your children tax-free. That's, that's the, the power of, of using this. But Again, this is not a magic pill. I always say this. You know, I think that a lot of people say this is the, the only the only way to you know put your money in, in savings or, or as an opportunity fund. Now, you know, I think what really what this is doing is this is allowing your capital to just be a little more efficient and effective. There is a loading period again in which when you put cash in, it's not necessarily going to be. Um, dollar in to dollar out but after you sort of hit that initial period your money's going to be working for you every single day no matter what and you can continue to use it over your lifetime i mean i personally like it because everybody knows the money sitting in your operating your savings account it's like a it's like a melting ice cube especially right now inflation running in real life, it's probably double digit. I mean, we know it's high. And so like if I hold money, it's if I hold $100,000 today, next year, it's effectively maybe worth 
90. You know, like I, I'm losing money rapidly. by Now, I still keep large cash reserves because that's part of my investment strategy. And actually, this is a good segue point. Let's say I take my cash reserves, I put them in um, one of your whole life insurance products that's compounding, and then I want to go to a bank. And a lot of times, especially in the private money world or the hard money world, and and traditional banking as well, they want to see like your cash on hand. There's a lot of investment loan programs that'll give you like five times your free cash. So can I show them that account? And are they, do you know how banks are treating these holdings? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, Obviously, this is a bank by bank basis, right? I, so I can't speak for any bank, but the banks that, that I've worked with and this, many of my clients have worked with, they treat it as pure cash on your balance sheet. I mean, if you, if you fill out a PFS, personal financial statement, they're going to ask, hey, do you have any cash value in life insurance? Every, every single personal financial statement, because you can pledge that as collateral um, to if, if you want to do the 7X or the 5X of of your cash reserves. So banks will will treat it as actual liquid cash reserves because it is accessible because it is liquid. So um, you know if if anyone's concerned about that, I think you should still have cash on hand. You know, I think that m- most people should have, especially if you're a real estate investor, there should be some liquidity just in pure cash. But a lot of my clients will put a lot the majority of their their cash reserves in these policies so that over time they're going to win. They're going to win. And uh, Clay, let's say I put in, uh, let's use easy numbers. I put in $100,000. I let it season, for lack of a better term. And now, how much leverage can I take off of that $100,000? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, on a, in, in year one, are you, are you saying? I know it does grow. So go ahead and walk us through. Like year one, what yep. I put it yep. in. When, when and how much can I take off? Yep. So year one is you're going to be, have access to about 65 to 75% of that. Now the LTV, and not a lot of people talk about this, but you can take up to ninety to $95,000, depending on the life insurance company, of that balance that is um, you know, the, your cash value balance. So $75,000, 95% of that. There has to be a margin there because they're not going to loan up to 100%, just like a bank's not going to loan up to 100% of your real estate. Because there has to be, hey, if you don't pay this back, that you know they want to have a little bit of um, a balance difference, right? A delta between the amount owed and the equity in your policy. Um, year two, depending on your health and age, you're going to get 85%, 80%. And then by year five, year four, year six, again, this is all health and age basis because this is life insurance. You're going to be able to break even and you're going to have access to 90 to 95% of that total. Gotcha. That's, and thank you for that. And so um, a couple of the other features that I thought were unique. So it is um, creditor protected, correct? Yep. So th- that's one of the, the interesting thing about this is many real estate investors and entrepreneurs are people that are sort of privacy oriented. You know, uh, it doesn't show up. If you're sued in most states, obviously there's some more uh, progressive states in which suits can be a little more aggressive, right? In my state in Pennsylvania, Florida, I mean, give me a break. Um, (laughs) Pennsylvania. Freedom state. Yeah, right. (laughs) Pennsylvania, um, you know, it's protected from creditors as well. You know, if they sue you, they can't touch it. You know, from a, from a perspective of a real estate investor, that that's very, very attractive, right? Because, 
it just shows up less assets on your books. You're less of an attractive um, person to be sued if you are in the case of, of being sued. Um, if you have take out a loan too, it doesn't show up on your debt to income ratio, which is really, really interesting for most investors, especially early on, because you know maybe you're in a W-2 and you're trying to transition to real estate full time and you're thinking about credit, you're thinking about debt. What's a private contract between you and the life insurance company? So what that means is uh, it doesn't show up on your on your credit score. So it's not going to affect your credit. Even if you have tons of loans outstanding, it's not going to even appear, which is very, very advantageous for real estate investors, especially if they're trying to get loans. As you know, um, it's difficult if, if you don't have a, a, you know, if you're self-employed to get, and, to get a and that, loan. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, essentially, it is your money. Now, your money has now gone to work on behalf of, uh, you know, some life company. But... It is your money, so it does make sense that if you take it off as credit, it's not really leverage. It's more like recovering some of your funds that have been compounding. Um, interesting. I, I, I don't I don't currently use this strategy, but I am a fan of it, and I'm I've been excited to talk about this topic, and I'm glad you brought it up. Um, for most of your clients. Do you tell them like any kind of uh, ratios or rules of thumb? Like if somebody, let's just stick with easy numbers. Somebody's got a hundred thousand um, dollars that's sitting like in operating. You know, or I have a large apartment complex in Georgia. You know, we okay. always have we always have over a hundred thousand dollars. Well, <laughs> it, we usually have over a hundred thousand dollars just sitting in operating, and we need it's it's uh, eighty three units, and you need to have it's smart to have you know five hundred to a thousand dollars a unit just in case you never know what's going to happen and um but what, what do you tend to see your your wealthy clients doing I, I like to move into the topic of like is this a good avenue to park um as real estate operating type funds so two, two things actually here the first thing is I, I think it's a tremendous place to to park it again we talked about you got to have some liquidity on the books um so you know i usually recommend it's a comfort level it's very much a comfort level because when you start to put these policies into play, you, you, you know, you might have one policy, you start with a smaller policy, which is sort of how I recommend everyone start. You know, whatever your comfort level is, make it a little smaller because in a couple of years, people start to see, hey, no, this is, this is really attractive. I'm going to start more policies. But, you know, again, this is, this is a comfort basis. I would say maybe set a policy up for $40,000. Right, depends on the cash flow from the property. Depends on how much you want it. You know, there's a lot of other factors, but maybe forty thousand keeps sixty thousand dollars in just straight liquidity. What's the age of the asset? I mean, there has to be a little bit more of information. Is your roof? How old is your roof? Right, you know, different yeah. things that really could be tragic. But again, you can use on a good majority of your cash right away, um, thirty days after you set up one of these policies. Another thing that sometimes I've seen people do is if they're syndicators or they're in partnerships, they create these things called buy-sell agreements, which are essentially life insurance contracts on partners that if someone ends up wanting to leave a partnership or someone dies, uh, you can funnel your cash flow and your operating expenses through these agreements. And then if someone dies, then the death benefit could pay off the other partner or that you know someone could leave the partnership and it could pay off the other partner. There are ways to sort of structure these things very creatively, so you're you're effectively insulated from partnership issues, deaths which happen, 
not very often, but it's just another way to have insurance around a partnership, especially if you're dealing with a very large asset. Uh, it could be a good way for you to not only protect your downside, but start to implement these sort of ways of, of warehousing your capital in a more efficient and effective way. No, I, I think it's smart. I think it's something that more people should be taking a look at, and myself included. I, I'm, this may be something that I look into, um, if anything, just for diversity, you know, because we're all going to keep, well, as you start to have success, you're going to end up with lump sums of capital. A lot of us real estate guys roll right into more real estate, but in these transitional times, or let's just say hypothetically, somebody's not comfortable today investing in uh Real estate assets. Well, and and maybe they just sold some assets in 18, 19, 20, 21, or maybe they just sold yesterday. Yeah. If they're not if they're not going to do a ten thirty one, they've already taken the money. Um, this might be something that they consider putting a chunk of their money into and let it grow. And then by the time you find something you want to invest, you're going to pull off that money as a line of credit. Uh, that does raise one more question: What would be the timing if I'm like ring ring Clay? I found a deal. I gotta I gotta fund this escrow deposit. How long till I can get that money? I'm, you, you, you put in a one sheet to a life insurance company. They could get it out to you next day, two days, depending on if it's the weekend, obviously business days, right? Um, depending on where you're in the country, it could be three days um, at the latest, but they're very quick in the turnaround. Um, kind of like a wire, right? Like a wire from a bank account. Well, that makes sense. So it wouldn't really slow you down with any actual business operations. I think no, it's not like it's going to take it. It's not like it's going to take you a week to get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that um, you've done a good job explaining the concept. Um, anything else you want to touch on with that? With that concept of yeah, kind of yeah. infinite banking? Yeah. One quick thing here. So you know, as real estate investors, right? We we're always sort of chasing the next deal, but I've seen people that are very, very successful investors think about their investing horizon in 40 years or in 30 years. And what a lot of these guys and gals want is they want guarantees and they want sustainable growth. So it's really sexy to talk about the burst strategy, but the burst strategy might not work in 10 years. You might have to shift to a different investment philosophy. Well, when you get a life insurance contract, there is guarantees built into the contract. With this, um, with the life insurance company that, that I use, I think is the, the best one to use for this specific strategy because of its flexibility and early look at easy access and, and liquidity. Uh, you, you have a 3% guarantee and then you can participate because it's a mutual life insurance company, you're a part owner in the upside dividend. So last year was three, uh, five and three quarters um, of a percent of the declared dividend. Uh, you get to participate in, the, in that upside. In an up market, if interest rates increase, your, your return, the declared dividend is also gonna in increase because these are very conservative uh, investments that the life insurance invest in life insurance companies invest in and then redistribute back to the policyholders. So the reason why I said that was because it's very, very sexy to think about leverage, leverage, leverage over your life. And especially if you're, you're, you're a younger person, you think I'm just gonna go hit home runs and just keep over leveraging. Well, I think at some point you have to start to think about how do I protect myself in downside risk? How do I have some sort of vehicle 
that can align with my goals as a long-term investor, maybe not even real estate, maybe investor in general, maybe you wanna buy small businesses, maybe you wanna build wealth in other ways, but that's gonna align with me over a long period of times in which I have guarantees and in which I know is gonna be there for me if I need it for early liquidity that's protected from any sort of lawsuit and it's gonna be growing over my lifetime. Yeah, and a lot of us real estate guys, it kind of depends on where you are in your journey. Early on, this probably wouldn't sound all that attractive, but you start you start having some success, and you're like, well, I, what can I what can I guarantee doesn't get taken away from me? Like, you know, hypothetically, you go from zero, and now you're like, okay, I used to have nothing. I had a couple hundred dollars in my checking account. Well, what if what if all of a sudden you're you're worth you know three million, five million, ten million, and you have you know hundreds of thousands of dollars just on hand, liquid? You might start thinking, where can I put some of this money where I just I am all nearly 100% guaranteed it will not disappear and it will grow. And um, I think that's where Clay's concept is uh, is probably most attractive. And I'm sure Clay would tell you, look, maybe start this when you're young and just have it be like a part of your pie chart. And it might just be a smaller part when you're young and it grows bigger as you get older and more wealthy. But um, I do think it's, um, it's kind of the gas in the brake or the tortoise in the hair. But I don't necessarily view it as a break. It's more of a safety net because it's kind of forcing you and you can't you know you can pull it out as a, as a loan and go use it but you know it's going to grow if you leave it alone so you're really pretty heavily incentivized just to kind of treat this money as like out of sight out of mind exactly and we can structure these things in creative ways we work with people with inheritances we work with people with business buyouts we do real estate investors we can do pretty much anything with this it's just how do we align this with your financial goals so that we can get you to freedom abundance safety and, and frankly, being able to do what you want faster. All right. Well, you're an ambitious young man. I don't think you've said. How old are you? 25. I See, I finally feel old on this show. All right. Well, <laughs> I was going to ask you, you know, your, your life goals, but, you know, you're, you're like an arrow drawn, just ready to shoot out. So um, what, what, are some of your, what are some of your goals? Where, where's Clay headed? Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I am uh, I'm in a couple of years – in due time, I'm excited to be a father. I'm not a father yet, so I'm not gonna. I'm not, I'm not breaking the news on this show, but I'm really excited to be, you know, a, a father for for my future children. I have a, a, a tremendously supportive and loving partner, and um, we had a COVID wet wedding postponed, so we're getting married next year officially. Even though she is my wife, um, officially. Congratulations! Thank you. And so um, that's one of the things that I'm most looking forward to. And really. Um, if I were to say it, I can't say it in terms of a goal, but I can say it in terms of I'm, I'm excited to chase my potential. I'm really, really um, interested in the mechanisms of how someone goes from nothing to building tremendous amounts of wealth. And I think the knowledge, the technology, the strategies that w we have access to today 20 years ago, we didn't have access to it. People weren't listening to podcasts like this. People weren't investing in burrs like random people like me. I had, no I had nothing and I was able to invest in all this real estate and get to light financial freedom very quickly. Anyone can do it. And so I'm really excited to see where, where I go in life and, and how many people I can impact with the creative capitalist, creative capitalist firm. Well, your, your energy and enthusiasm are palpable and contagious. So I like that. Um, 
You know, it's funny because I had a similar conversation with the producer of this podcast, Sammy, and she's closer to your age than mine. Um, <laughs> Not yet 30, but there we were kind of debating about like how people used to gain wealth in the you know previous generations versus now and kind of wealth gaps. And, you know, it does seem pretty well shown that, you know, wealth gap is is actually an issue and perhaps a growing issue. But however, the I think one silver lining is there are more unique and um, creative ways for like I, I don't come from anything. My, my parents were school teachers and. Late in life, my dad became an attorney, but it didn't it didn't directly affect me as like wealth and finance. So I, I self started from being a high school football teacher to you know where I am now, very comfortable. And you it sounds like you don't come from any particular silver spoon background. So here we are, two guys that have pulled it off. And there's just more ways than ever. The technology you, know, you could watch podcasts and YouTube videos and find a mentor and just be eager to learn. And um, I think it's an exciting time for somebody that has like a fire in their belly like you do. And, and clearly I do as well. So it's fun to have you on and just see the contagious 25 year old energy. And yeah, and it's been, a, it's really been a pleasure to be on. I appreciate the opportunity. I hope that some of your listeners take something away from this, this conversation today. And, you know, I'd be happy to talk to any of them related to this or investing in Burr real estate or, or luxury Airbnbs or how to build wealth in general or whatever. I love talking about this stuff, and, and I really appreciate the opportunity, Ian. Well, wonderful. Uh, tell us, tell us what, when you're not solving the world's financial problems, <laughs> what, do, what do you do for fun? Well, um, I, we have this Airbnb in Colorado, and, and we love hiking. We love going outside. We love you know, swimming and, and hiking. We, do tra- we, really love, we really love traveling, and I'm a, I'm a pretty voracious reader, and... Um, I mean, it's really outdoor activities, working out, challenging my mind in, in that way and, and you know, trying to find a lot of like-minded people too. Friendship is, is super important to me and trying to surround myself with people that are enriching and challenging and, and help me grow and I can contribute to is something that's really, uh, that I really like to do as well. Well, I'm excited to see where you end up. We might have to have you back on in a couple years. Um, I definitely see a bright future for you. Well, where can people find Clay? Yeah, yeah. So you can get me at creative-capitalist.com. That's sort of my website. You can kind of go into some of the videos that I've created related to the stuff that we described here today. I'm on all social medias, Clay Hepler. Uh, You can text me at 412-552-552. Three zero two nine. Don't call me because I probably won't pick up because I get a lot of spam calls. So shoot me a text. I'd love to talk to you about anything and help you on your financial freedom journey. Well, that's very generous of you. At at my age, at forty, I no longer give out my uh, cell phone for text on the show. But <laughs> I love you all just the same. All right. Um, well, this has been a lot of fun, Clay. Thank you very much. And as always, we encourage the audience. You know, if you made it this far, you're you know you're awesome. You've you've made it almost an hour in, and I hope you've taken something from this episode. Please be sure to rate and subscribe because that gets us better boosting in Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever you're listening to this, and um, and it helps us out a little bit. And for now, I want to go ahead and sign off and thank you, Clay. It's been a real pleasure. And this is the Yield Coach Ian Brown telling everybody to lace up and leave it all on the field. Yield Coach out. Love it.